This is Industry Matters, powered by BGM, a post-acute healthcare podcast about community, connections, and belonging. BGM is a member service organization serving durable and home medical equipment providers and manufacturers. BGM also has communities for respiratory, complex rehab, women's health mastectomy, home accessibility, therapy, and orthotics and prosthetics professions. With BGM, you're part of something bigger. We are very excited to be launching a new podcast series for our OPGA community, Women Leaders in ONP. In this series, Ashley White, OPGA's ONP 2021 Woman of the Year and Director of Health Policy and Strategic Alliances for AOPA, interviews other women leaders in the orthotics and prosthetics profession. In this first episode, Ashley talks with Nikki Grace Strader, the incoming fellow for NAAOP. Hello all, I am Ashley White, the Director of Health Policy and Strategic Alliances for the American Orthotic and Prosthetic Association. I am also the OMP Woman of the Year for 2021. I look forward to interviewing women leaders in the OMP profession for this new podcast series. I really appreciate um, being able to talk with other women leaders in the profession. Um, Nikki, do you want to introduce yourself? Thank you. For this opportunity, Ashley, thank you for inviting me um, to to do this interview with you. My name is Nikki Grace Strader. Um, I am the Director of North American Operations for the Osseo Integration Group of Australia and Osseo Integration International. I am also an above-knee amputee. Um, I'm a certified peer visitor and certified peer visitor trainer with the Amputee Coalition. I have a nonprofit here in the state of Illinois, Central Illinois Amputees, and I am the incoming uh, fellow for the NAAOP. That is an interesting background. I did want to ask you to tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in the OMP community. I know you said that you're a patient, um, but I'd love to know a little bit more about how you found yourself in your current role. I am an above-knee amputee. I lost my um, right leg above the knee in 2016, uh, and and that came after a spinal cord injury um, in a motor vehicle accident that led to a number of complications. I am a West Coast kid. I I grew up in Northern California, uh, but I'm I'm married to a pretty amazing man out here in Illinois in a very rural, rural community. Um, And when I was first you know, facing kind of the the challenges of, of learning what how to be an amputee. And, and I, I've had this conversation with a number of people, and I know that this is a this is a common thing. I actually never knew an amputee. I'd never known an amputee before I became one. So I, I didn't even have, you know, a place to go and ask questions. While I was in uh, the rehabilitation hospital after my amputation, I was very focused on my rehabilitation and just really excited to to have all of this stuff behind me and and be, you know, working towards mobility and getting my life back. One of the things that I was given in that facility was the first steps guide from the amputee coalition, which which was just such a wealth of information, but it also sparked a lot of questions. And um, I think I reached out to the amputee coalition a lot in in that first year. While I was in that rehab hospital, um, I made lots of friends, and we had a very tight knit group in our in our rehabilitation pod. And towards the end of my stay, there was someone who was um, 
ready to be released to go home. And due to the to the Medicare laws and how she was insured and how rurally she lived, they went and did a home visit. And in that home visit, they determined it would be unsafe for her to go home because she had three stairs to get up into her home, but she didn't have the means or the ability to build a ramp. And and so I started asking questions. Okay, how do we how do we build her a ramp? Like how do we get her? How do we, you know, this this woman wants to go home. How do we get her home? And 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 the learning that came after that was really an avalanche of information in that, you know, you can't get goods donated to build a ramp and you can't, you know, get services donated and you and it just was very cumbersome and then you know, someone mentioned, you know, if you had a nonprofit, this would all become very easy. So that was really how it started. It started about these rural communities um, and and these, you know, rural farmers and, and these people that I drive, well, I used to drive 85 miles one way to the closest prostatist. So when you think about that in light of someone who maybe doesn't have a driver, in their home or doesn't have the resources to get 85 miles you're you're really talking about some some very specific barriers that are put in place that get in the way of having access to care or having continuity of care or consistency or or um, even having the support of someone that wants to see you thrive so that's really how it started it started with i i I identified a need in this rural population and in our farmers and our and and these really salt of the earth lovely human beings who are kind of being forgotten about in in this access desert um, in in the middle of the country. So it started there. Again, I had a lot of engagement with the amputee coalition very early on. Really got a lot of support. Um, from them. I, I can think of so many significant pieces. Um, you know, my kids were seven um, when I lost my leg and going to my first coalition conference and having my twins walk into the lobby of that hotel and suddenly they were just normal kids in a room full of amputees instead of kids who had a mom in a small town that's an amputee. Like there were so many things that made this learning curve less abrasive, I guess. So that's how it started. That's how I got into um, this. And again, I went on to become a peer visitor. I went on to become a peer visitor trainer and, you know, to participate in a number of coalition, oh, the limb loss education days and, and the conferences and all of those things. And when I was signed up to do the the peer visitor training course, it's it's like eight hours a day for the entirety of the conference plus two days. And on day two of that, I was struggling so hard in a socket trying to just get to the class. And then I was struggling so hard once I was there. Um, so, you know, the coalition again stepped up and, and literally the teacher of that class, you know, was going to piggyback me <laughs> to get me there. Like she wasn't going to let me drop out when I really felt like I just, I just couldn't do it. It was just too much. So that was a long-winded answer, Ashley. I'm sorry. I, does that answer your question or can I give you more specifics? Yeah, no, don't, don't, don't apologize. Don't apologize at all. I, I, um, what I think I'm hearing 
that I'm pulling out from this is that uh, advocacy has always been something that you were naturally inclined to, but also you were experiencing your own challenges as a patient that made you need those resources outside of your of your immediate community, your immediate um, access. And you were able then to translate sort of that opportunity that you found with the Amputee Coalition and through your own advocacy work, translate that externally to members in your community that you realize were disadvantaged or, like you said, in an access desert. Um, I, I love that term, access desert. That's a really interesting way to put it. And it, it's so true. So many of our rural communities um, the members in those communities have to drive really far to get to their prosthetist offices. And so I think you've identified an area where advocacy is absolutely needed. And it sounds like you stepped up to provide that advocacy. Um, and because, you know, you, you seem like a natural advocate, I, I don't, I wonder, you know, did you, um, prior to your accident, did you, did you get involved in, in advocacy in any other way in, in, in your previous life? I actually did. So uh, um, as I said, I grew up in Northern California. I was a firefighter paramedic um, in the Bay Area. And I, I worked, um, you know, I mean, my job was to to work with people that um, were homeless or disadvantaged or, um, you know, not able to um, have opportunities just for primary care, you know, and we're using 911 and, and emergency rooms for that. So I was able to participate in programs there where we were, we were um, given some expanded scope and allowed to, to bridge those gaps. So um, I come from a long history. My mother, you know, worked for the state of California for the department of AIDS and, and there's a whole lot of advocacy there. So it, it really, Probably I was born into advocacy roles, but I have always loved it. I have always um, loved being involved in things that, you know, were about figuring out the solution instead of, you know, rehashing the problem. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, I'm going to come back to you on that solution oriented posture later in our discussion. But uh, since we know now that you're a natural born advocate, um, I, I want to ask you about your upcoming role with the um, George and Dina Brees Fellowship for NAOP. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your expectations for that uh, role and, and what you what you are going to be doing in Washington? I'm incredibly excited about this and I'm terribly thankful just to be involved in the program and the evolution of this, you know, through the pandemic and everything. Um, when I, when I first got the fellowship, even what I was doing in a professional capacity was so different than it is now, but I see this as an opportunity to kind of be involved and, and get to see how the sausage is made, get to see how, um, healthcare policy and policy language and all of those things are formulated, not just around the existing OMP industry, but around emerging technologies, around innovation, how we're embracing that. Um, so I'm really excited. I'm very hopeful that this will happen in uh, May of 2022. Uh, but it, it's, it's, I think, I think it's an incredible opportunity to be a fly on the wall and watch how all of these pieces come together. 
That's great. I, I certainly look forward to working with you in Washington. Um, I think we will have uh, great opportunities to take our message, the message of the OMP profession, um, to the Hill together. So I very much hope it happens as well. So I'm wondering, you know, with this, this opportunity to advocate, would, what would you consider your hope for the OMP patient population? Uh, what comes out of this advocacy work that, you know, you're going to learn how to, the sausage is made, but what is it about that opportunity that you think will translate into something for, for the patient population? As I said earlier, you know, when I first became an amputee, I was an incredibly motivated and dedicated rehabilitation patient. And I had all this support coming in from all of this information I was getting from the coalition and peer visits and all, all of these things. And I truly, truly believed that I was going to go into my first prosthetics appointment where I was getting my leg. You know, I was going to go in on crutches and I was going to walk out into the world I had been missing out on and into all of the things that, that, you know, I hadn't been able to participate in since my amputation. And I very quickly learned that that was not the truth. That was not the truth for me. And as supportive and amazing as everybody was, and I, and I had a, I have a really good prosthetist as, as supportive, as supportive as he was, there was nothing he was going to be able to do to fix the things that were not working for me. This didn't have to do with socket fabrication. It didn't have to do, you know, with the components available. It didn't have to do with any of those things. It had to do with my physical condition and, and the extent of my spinal fusion. I just didn't have the ability to um, use my hip flexor to move that socket forward. And that was a really crushing blow for me um, because I was so, so focused on, on getting better and, and getting back out there. And as I started to explore options that were out there, I hit a lot of walls. I hit a lot of, you know, um, obstacles that were now things that, that potentially could get in the way of, of me being successful as an amputee. And so when I look at this from a big picture perspective, when I look at this from a larger lens, what I'm looking at is um, what we touched on earlier, and that's solutions, you know, being solution oriented, looking for ways that we are looking for solutions, not just for patients, but for clinicians and practitioners and where we're able to provide some wraparound care when you know, things that, that maybe are the standard aren't working. Um, and I think that goes back to, you know, um, those access to care deserts and when people don't have access. But really what I'm hoping for is that we get to shine a great big Klieg light on um, emerging technology, on innovation, and on ways that we're communicating that with patients with clinicians, with policymakers, you know, with the healthcare industry, so that innovation and technology are not so feared or not, you know, people aren't, aren't so um, hesitant to embark on something new. It really is a unique opportunity that OMP clinicians have to impact um, 
people's lives. And I'm going to repeat something that I've heard from other clinicians. Um, It's that they see their impact so readily that they often have a hard time articulating it. So it's, it's, part of the patient's journey, right, to to push themselves to be able to walk again after limb loss. Um, but the clinician, they get to see that over and over again in their practice. And sometimes when you ask them, well, you know, what did you do for this patient? Um, <laughs> they can't always readily articulate it. And it is our job as advocates. It's, you know, your role at, as an NAOP fellow will be to spread that message, to share the story of the OMP care provided uh, and the, the life transforming opportunities um, that it gives our patients. And so I, I'm so excited for you to be in that position, particularly because you are personally experiencing an innovative technology right now. Do you mind uh, talking a little bit about about that aspect of um uh, you know, your prosthetic care specifically? It was honestly a frustrated Google search. And it was probably something very similar to, I'm a brand new above knee amputee and I can't tolerate a socket. What are my options? And about the fifth or sixth thing down the page was osseointegration. And I did a deep dive. I started researching. I started getting information and and finding out what I could. And, and I, I was fairly confident this was going to be the right solution for me. Um, I had a little more work to do to get my husband and the boys on board for that one. But um, the the technology itself is direct skeletal implantation of a prosthesis. So my prosthesis doesn't connect to a socket. It comes through the skin at the residual end of my femur. Microprocessor knee connects directly to it. And by doing that, um, it does a couple of things. One, it restores... Um, osseoperception, which is, you know, feeling what's beneath your feet and proprioception, um, balance. A lot of um, amputees have trouble, you know, walking across a crowded restaurant carrying something in their hands or um, carrying something in their hands at all or walking on grass or gravel or uneven surfaces um, or changing terrain because they can't negotiate they can't feel what's beneath their feet, walking backwards, things like that. And with osseointegration, for most patients, all of those things are restored, all, all of that ability. So um, I went from barely wearing my socket ever because it was truly so uncomfortable uh, with my spine. Uh, on my best days, I uh, would could walk about 2,000 steps and... But even then, I would need a day or two of recovery from that. And since osseointegration, it is not uncommon for me to walk over five miles in a day. Um, My husband, the kids, and I have done 5Ks together. And I get up in the morning, I, with the turn of one screw, put that prosthesis on, and I don't think about it until I go to bed at night. And... And again, this has nothing to do with the socket fabrication or the design of the socket. This was all about the sp- my spine and how much it hurt for me to try and waddle when waddle had literally been built out of me. This was an incredible option for me. And it was a very good answer for the challenges that I was facing. And I, I respect and appreciate it is not everyone's solution. but if it's an option, 
if it's an option or a point of discussion, or we can create opportunities where we're sharing information and education about things like osseointegration, aren't we then also creating opportunities for access to care? I think that that's a great point. And thank you for using your personal experience to underscore it, because I, I think you're right. It, it also goes back to this the the importance of the clinical expertise and and the prosthetists and orthodists are the individual clinicians that are going to have the most information about uh, about those solutions for their patients and so it's a great example of how you were able to find an appropriate solution for you that's not going to be everybody's solution um, but that the the prosthetist is still part of your journey now and um, and so I I think it's it's you, you talked about fear earlier and, and the fear of innovation and, uh, and avoiding that and making sure that we're communicating to policymakers, lawmakers, um, clinicians alike, the community as a whole about innovation and technology and, and, and being open to it. Um, so thank you so much for, for pushing that message forward as well. Is there anything that you'd like to share with the community as you, um, you know, enter into the fellowship or uh, any kind of parting words that you um, want to share about your experience as a, as a leader in the profession now? Yes. One, I am thrilled to be involved in this industry and I'm thrilled to get to answer questions and to get to be a, a part of these discussions. Um, I also have, have been looking at you know, amputation and prosthetic care from a lot of different angles and, and through a lot of peer visits and a lot of um, patient interactions. And one of the big takeaways that, that has really become very clear for me is that I, I try and approach all of this with any patient that I'm talking to at any, you know, stage of their journey is, you know, what's your mountain? What's your mountain? And for some amputees out there, their mountain is a literal mountain, right? They're going to climb Everest or they're going to, you know, go out and, and run with bulls or, or do those kinds of things. But the truth is knowing what your mountain is, knowing where that personal fulfillment or those, um, those amazing endorphins that come from a feeling of success come from, it's really important to identify What's your mountain? You know, where, 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 how do you feed that? And when I look at my journey and, and the, the decade of um, issues after my spinal cord injury, my mountain was very small in, in the big picture. My mountain was, you know, my, my twins were 13 months old when I was in my accident. So they'd spent their entire toddler years and all that time growing up. And I was never able to hold their hand in public because my hands were always full of crutches or of wheelchair wheels. And the same, I was never able to hold my husband's hand in public. But that mountain and knowing that that's how I, I feed that feeling in me has, has been a monumental and amazing thing to be able to have. And also to know that that it's okay that that was my mount. That's, that's, you know, where I identify success with, and it doesn't have to be an actual mountain. It can be something very simple. And I think that's a, a takeaway um, for, 
you know, most amputees is, you know, not comparing yourself to how other people are doing or not gauging your level of success based on how someone else's success is represented, but identifying what your success is and then working towards it. Thank you so much, Nikki, for sharing your story with us and outlining how you became part of the OMP profession. I'm looking forward to working with you in DC um, and uh, best of luck at the NAOP fellowship. Uh, I also want to encourage you all to join us again for the next podcast um, and where I will interview another wonderful uh, individual who is contributing to the OMP community now. Thank you for listening to Industry Matters. Make sure you never miss an episode by visiting vgm.com slash Industry Matters podcast or following Industry Matters on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or Stitcher.